Hi, y'all. We are back for another episode, and I'm really excited today to have Chris Bonello on the podcast. He is actually from the UK, so I'm really excited. You're going to hear our differences in accents, and I'm so grateful for him making time because we do have the time differences, but he actually runs the account Autistic Not Weird, and so I am so excited just to be able to learn from him and hear his perspective. He is a master of the Rubik's Cube and is an author himself. So we will be diving into all of that today. As I always say on the podcast, listening to autistic individuals, hearing about their experiences, their perspectives is incredibly important and can give you so much insight too into how your child's brain thinks. So Chris, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm yeah. kind words. Oh, of course, of course. So let's kick off and have you tell us a little bit about you, who you are, and give us some background. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast. And I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well-being as a parent, supporting your non-autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. Okay. Uh, yep. My name's Chris Bonello, and I'm an autistic advocate. And that sounds like the most vague job title ever, but it's a bit curious. When I used to be a teacher, I'd just say, I'm a primary school teacher, or I'm a teacher in a school for autistic students, and people would instantly know what that, that entailed. But these days, I've left teaching forever. I've left teaching forever twice. It was quite impressive. But these days, I'm being an autistic advocate. Sometimes involves conference speeches. Sometimes it involves teacher training. Sometimes it involves consultations. Sometimes it involves writing books. And yeah, underneath everything I do, it's all about not so much raising awareness of autism because most people are aware of autism these days. But awareness is a very passive thing that you don't need to do anything with. It's it's more about raising the profile of old sermons, persuading people of the vital importance of neurodivergence, the fact that autistic people don't exist by accident. Human progress relies on diversity of thought. And that's the message I give to whether it's teachers or companies or whoever will listen, really. Yeah. But yeah, that's what I do these days. Used to be a teacher. Now I'm an advocate. Awesome. Yeah. And I, that's a focus a lot on this podcast is talking about neurodivergence and really this process of acceptance and how we promote strengths, but also provide support areas where they're needed. And I think that's been a huge shift. I don't know in the UK, I'm curious, but I would say in the US, that would probably the last couple years, I feel like this idea of neurodiversity and how brains are wired differently has really taken off here. What about in terms of the UK? Is that is it a somewhat newer conceptualization or do you feel like it's been around for a longer period? It's being listened to a lot more now. 
the term neurodiversity has been around since the 90s, but there's there's phrases that uh, that have to exist for a while before people pay attention to them. Like one of my favourite examples is the word gaslighting. The word gaslighting was invented. It was it the 1930s or the 1940s? But it's oh, wow. really in these last five years. Yeah, it was uh, based on was it a movie? I think it was a movie. But it's only these last five years that people have started using it, and it's become in common usage. And now neurodiversity. You could either look at it very cynically or very pragmatically. The cynical way of looking at it is that it's become a really trendy, hot topic and companies lo- love to talk about how inclusive they-, they are and so on. But again, looking at it pragmatically, some I'd like to think that each company does have people who really want to get the best from their neurodivergent employees. Schools, by and large, tend to care about the children, including the neurodivergent ones. So that again, there's the cynical way of looking at it. Like, oh, it's a, just a cool thing to talk about. But I think that there's perhaps a lot more sincerity behind it than the more cynical among us may want to believe. And it's even if the cynical viewpoint is true, that is still an opportunity because in five, ten years' time we may have found something else to talk about. Every few years, the hot, trendy to- uh, topics seems to change. So it's really our responsibility to push the uh, narrative about divergence in a healthier way for neurodivergent people while people are listening. Yeah. I love that you brought up the point of like how we view it can be very different. And part of my mindset is, who cares if we're cynical or it's well-intentioned? Like you said, let's take advantage of it. And I feel from a personal perspective, I've been in the autism field for over a decade, but it's just really the last year or two that I've been leaning into this and really shifting my perspective. And I just look at how much it's changed my work and how much more too it helps us connect. I work primarily with kids, but connect with autistic kids by having this perspective. I just, I'm glad it's the hot topic. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, yeah, I've heard quite a quite a compelling argument, really, that let's take the LGBT plus movement mm-hmm. and how every June lots of corporations are quite happy to to slap rainbow colours over their logos and so on, but how much are they doing to actually improve inclusion within their company for LGBT plus employees? And the the very interesting point once heard, how come there are companies that have been supporting Pride uh, for years and years? but only started speaking out in favour of marriage equality once it was legalised by the state. Mm. As you said, even then, let's pretend that it really is all just for show. At least the performance is there. Yeah. The opportunity is there. The topic is being talked about. So um, whether it is a company with the most honest and sincere drive for neurodiversity inclusion, or whether it's someone who's just doing it for the likes or whatever, there, there is an opportunity. And regardless of our attitude towards the origins of that opportunity, opportunities should be taken. Yeah. And I think it just allows us to connect to in a person at the individual level more. Mm-hmm. I think I look five years ago and I think we would be like, and we didn't use identity first language then either. It'd be like, oh, oh this, yeah. which is a whole thing, but it'd be like, oh, this child with autism. And we'd be so hyper fixated on the autism, we'd forget about 
the child. And so I think that is one of the coolest things personally I've seen, whether it's working with children or employees of like, how do we see them as a person first and foremost, that the way their brain is wired is unique and all of our brains are uniquely wired. And so connecting and using that human relationship versus just seeing someone as a quote unquote, like label, I think that's one of the things that I've really seen a shift with. And this idea of the goal isn't to fix, right? It never should have been, but we were in that mindset for so, so long. Yeah, it is quite interesting that sometimes we focus so much on, we as in society, we focus so much on the autism that we forget about autistic people. Mm. It's, And when you focus just on the autism, then inevitably people will end up being led into seeing it as some kind of problem that needs solving rather than a person who may need accommodations more than anything needs the same rights and dignity as humans in general do. It just may look a bit different if the person has a brain that's different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so well said. I couldn't agree more. So I'm curious for you, Chris, when did you start to know that you are autistic? When did that journey start for you? Okay, two answers there. If you'd asked, when do you first start to know you were different, would would have been very early, like very early, maybe six at the oldest. But since you asked, how old was I when I first started to find out I was autistic, I was 24. The thing is, I was assessed for autism at the age of four, but it was 1989. As I always say, the movie Rain Man had only been out for one year, so there was no chance that someone like me was going to be diagnosed as autistic. And then at the age of 10, I was assessed again, and it was 1995, so the answer was no. Then I got assessed in... Yeah, I found out I was autistic in 2009. It was 2011 when I got the the diagnosis from a consultant psychiatrist who basically said, yeah, Chris, you've been autistic your whole life. We just didn't know what it was. Yeah. So... When you got assessed multiple times, I'm curious, was this because like your parents were having concerns and like they just wanted to figure out like how best to support you? Was it a provider of some sort recommending you get tested again? So the first one when I was four years old, I'm pretty sure that started because of my playgroup kind of kindergarten, except one step younger. The staff there used to tell my parents that Christopher doesn't play with the other children. He just sits under the table and eats the Play-Doh and and I was often uh, say after I said that sentence in my defense, Play-Doh does taste amazing. Does but, it? <laughs> it? It does, but unfor- unfortunately, um, when I was twenty nine, I got diagnosed with celiac disease, and uh, Play-Doh has gluten in it, so I can't eat Play-Doh anymore. Oh, yeah. But when I was four, it tasted nicer. It was certainly a more entertaining pastime than socializing with a bunch of people who, frankly, acted like four year olds. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that was a source of. Uh, my first assessments, the fact that I wasn't socializing as much as I was supposed to. And so I probably, just in terms of how I was, just appeared different from other people. And so, um, my parents are the type of people who would acknowledge that if I was different to other people, that's fine. That's just down to personality. That's great. If some of that difference involves difficulties, like in my case, it was speech difficulties, that is something that needs addressing. So that was the source of my first assessment. The assessment when I was 10, uh, that one actually wasn't for autism because by then they knew it wasn't autistic. It was just to investigate 
why I was so academically ahead of my peers at the same time as being so far socially behind my peers. And the the key sentence in the report, and you could get away with writing this in 1995, what they literally wrote down, an actual quote from a real-life educational psychologist, Christopher has a slightly odd personality. Mm. Yeah. So apparently it wasn't autistic. I just had a slightly odd personality. In fact, <laughs> never mind, autist, not weird. I almost called my website slightlyoddpersonality.com. <laughs> Simply because that's... Yeah, in the end, I went, went for something more awesome specific but it was so tempting yeah for sure that okay that makes a lot of sense so given the fact you weren't identified as autistic until you were a young adult were there other like labels or classifications that were thrown out throughout your childhood pain lazy weird More specific things were relating to specific things that I couldn't do that day or, what, or whatever. Mm-hmm. There, there were a couple of positive ones. Like I, I was very, very clever. What that meant was that I was academically clever. I wasn't clever in terms of how people work. And so really, I was in the 30s until I started to learn that stuff. But yeah, I was academically clever. And that was the thing that really counted. So not all of the labels were bad. But... Knowing I was autistic at a younger age than 24 might have helped me a little bit more. Tell me, speak a little bit more to that last point. People generally, and I'm talking about very young people here, we learn very early when we are different to other people and that different is bad. I don't know whether it's a herd mentality thing, maybe it's an evolutionary thing, I don't know. But If you are different to lots of other people, you notice and you think, wait, hang on, I shouldn't be like that. It's compounded by the fact that other people are telling you that. Mm -hmm. It is compounded by the fact that when you become an adult and you're trying to get your first teaching job, you're failing interviews all over the place while all these non-autistic teachers are succeeding all over the place. And And yeah, all these social expectations that were built with everyone else in mind that takes place in a world, that was, in a society that was built with everyone else in mind, that is sending that same message to you. You are not the person who is supposed to belong. And this is a you problem. It's not an everyone else problem. We can't be wrong because we're the majority. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I love, yeah, how you explain that because I think you're right, you know, is different. And like you said, what why that comes into play, you automatically think that there's something flawed with you. I'm... Mm. Curious for you, what was it like at 24? You've gone through your whole life where you've known you're different. You're being told over and over that you're different. What was it like to have it confirmed that you are autistic? Mm. Overall, it was a good thing. Generally speaking, I'll go back to my personal reaction in a little bit, but generally speaking, people think that. If you tell your child they're autistic, they're going to think, oh, no, it's the end. Everything's awful. And some people will think, oh, I don't want to tell my child they're autistic in case they feel like they're different. Well, newsflash, they already know they're different. Give them a word for it and give them the assurance that it's not a negative thing. Yeah, most of the time that's true. With me, I ended up getting there. It just took me a little bit longer because I found out I was autistic during a fairly negative time in my life. So... When I had this word called autism, I, I described it at the time as being the beauty and the beast. 
It was the source of my mathematical skills. It was the source of my incredible memory. But it was also the reason why I was bad at this, bad at that. And so looking back, a bunch of it wasn't really a fault with me. My litmus test for this is if 98% of the human population thought like me, would this characteristic about me be a problem? If the answer is no, then it's not something I should be blaming myself for. Ooh, that's so good. So good. I think I need to mean that one. I wouldn't quite say I was improvising it. I was improvising the sentence, but the thoughts have been there for a while. Yeah, totally. So yeah, finding out I was autistic helped me to make peace with myself and it helped me to uh, acknowledge that I wasn't the wrong kind of person just because I wasn't like everyone else. And more than anything else, perhaps the most useful part of it, actually two most useful parts of it. First off, it was a nice defense against all those people saying, oh, so you don't know you're autistic, you just think it. And uh, I absolutely acknowledge the validity of uh, what they call self-diagnosis. I call it self-identifying as autistic. I don't I don't want to get into too much detail of the semantics of the wording and so on, but I am, if an undiagnosed autistic person tells me they're autistic, I generally believe them because I know how difficult it is for a lot of people, especially if you're a non-male, non-white, non-middle-class person and so on. Absolutely. With, with that said, at the time, back in 2011, it, it was when I got the diagnosis, I, I was quite grateful for the opportunity to have a counter-argument to these, these people, one of whom asked me, what makes you think you're autistic then? Or who decided you're autistic? I can't remember exactly how they phrased it, but they were stumped when I said, a consultant psychiatrist. Mm. Anyway, but that little tangent went on there. The really useful thing the diagnosis uh, got me, I'm conflating a diagnosis with identifying as autistic. But to me, at the time, they were quite similar things. Yes. But recognising that I was autistic, it's helped me to realise that all that effort that I'd been going to make myself appear more like other people, that was not fixing me. That was damaging me. And it was very important that I learned that lesson before I did any more damage than I already had. Yeah. And for parents listening, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what we often define masking as, this trying to fit in, hide your Mm -hmm. true identity. And instead of fixing the problem, you're saying it ultimately caused more damage. Absolutely. Yeah. And it doesn't stop during childhood necessarily either. It's... And I suppose it stops when you're surrounded by people who you know won't judge you and people who you don't feel the need to be anxious around. But yeah, I am. Um, when I talk to companies about making their workplace more neurodivergent friendly, people ask, okay, how do we make our, uh, our workspace more neurodivergent friendly? One of the things I say, which sounds really obvious, is ask us. But ask us and believe us. Don't only believe us if it's convenient or if it's inexpensive or if it already falls in line with the policies you already have. Believe us and act on it, even if it's something that's outside of the comfort zone. But the caveat I add onto the end of that is create the kind of environment where the employee or the child, if you're talking about a school, feels able to be honest. Because the stereotype is that autistic people don't know how to lie. That's load of rubbish. We, we struggle with being inauthentic, except when masking is involved. For example, a lot of companies slash a lot of schools may not have the environment, even if with best intentions, they won't have got the environment 
for this particular autistic child, but then they'll go to that child and say, so does anything make you feel uncomfortable at this school or in this company? And the autistic person will usually, if they don't feel comfortable, give the answer that they think the grown-up wants to hear or that the boss wants to hear because there's less trouble that way. And we've usually by then learned from experience what happens if you're honest with someone who apparently you're not supposed to be honest with. Honesty is the best policy, except when it's not. And there is no kind of clear dividing line as to when it's good and when it's bad. All we really have to fall back on is what makes me get judged and what does not make me get judged. And what doesn't make you get judged is giving people the answer they want to hear. So if you really want to authentically improve your school or your company for the neurodivergent people in it, create the environment where we feel that we can be totally honest in our feedback and we know that we won't be judged by it. Yeah. The way that you just articulated that makes it's so clear and it makes so much sense. There's so much nuance to telling the truth when being honest and learning how to find those patterns. And it's taking me back to a recent therapy session that I had with a preteen boy. And we had been going through therapy. I use a very family-based approach. So parents are often in, we're talking tons about neurodiversity. This um, kid also has the PDA profile. We're talking very openly about a lot of this, but it's really interesting until he was, he would answer and was willing to share, but there was this moment in one of our sessions where the mom, a situation had come up with someone they knew and the mom's, I really want to hear what he thinks. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Let's create our safe bubble right now. And no matter what you say, it is, it's going to be listened to. It will not be like brought up later in any way. Like we want to hear it like brought up later in a way of you said this, like that accusatory tone yeah. or thrown back in his face in any way and really creating that safe bubble. I will tell you, I learned more about this kid in that session than I had over many sessions of working with him and providing that clear, safe boundary to actually be honest, I, I know how to support him so much better now. So I, it just made me think of this example. And I think parents, even if they don't have control of some of the environments that their kids are going into, which advocacy goes such a, a far way with that, but at least creating that safe space at home where they know, yeah, I actually do want to hear what this is like. And I want to hear about your experiences, even if I'm not going to agree with it. It's still important that you feel heard. Absolutely. Yeah, that's reminds me. And uh, I think we may be in danger here of going to one of those neurodivergent discussions where <laughs> we keep meandering around. This reminds me this interesting thing. This, this reminds me of this interesting thing. That, yeah, what you yeah. just mentioned about the importance of actually being heard and acknowledged. That's, yeah, it reminds me of one thing that I advise teachers when they have a nervous child coming up to them or a child with low self-esteem uh, and actually being brave enough to talk about their problems. What I say is, and it sounds so obvious when I start to say it, I say, when someone is brave enough to talk to you about their problems, don't contradict them. And you may be thinking, but I, I don't, surely, but honestly, it is so much easier than you think it is. For example, a teacher might have an eight-year-old boy coming up to them and saying, oh, I'm really nervous because I'm terrible at maths. 
And the first instinct will be to say, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. After all, I've been supportive. But first off, what's the intended response from the child? Oh, no. Oh, okay. Thank, fine. That's brilliant. Thank you. Right. Yeah, no one ever had their anxiety cured because the adults around them chose to not take it seriously. That is not how the human brain works. If I had a child coming up to me and telling me that they were terrible at maths, my general response would be, okay, what makes you think that? Because if they know me well enough to feel comfortable with coming to me with this problem, they already know me well enough to know that I'm going to disagree. I don't have to metaphorically nail my colours to the mast right from the first sentence and start presenting a counter-argument. I'll simply ask, provide further details. Let's talk this out. Let's give you this opportunity to get out all this stuff that must have been in your brain for a long time before you took those steps to, to talk to me. So after they've told me why they believe they're terrible at maths, then it becomes a discussion and that, I find, is what helps them. But like I said, it's starting off with actually hearing them rather than saying what you already know you're going to say first. Listen to them first. Yeah. Yeah. So important. And I know we could talk about this forever because we're both passionate about it. But I feel like one way in which you hear autistic individuals and their experience is through your social media presence and the brand that you've built, Autistic Not Weird. So talk a little bit about how that came to be and some of the missions that you have behind Autistic Not Weird. Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Okay. You remember a little while ago when I said I'd left teaching forever twice? Mm-hmm. The first time I left teaching forever, it turns out that, that was when I left mainstream teaching forever. I ended up going back in, into uh, specialist education and uh, teaching at school specifically for autistic students. And... After the first time I left teaching, I came to realize very quickly how much I missed building people up. I was still volunteering with my local boys' brigade company. We're basically the scouts, except we're the people who invented the scouts. I wanted to do something, and people kept telling me I was good at writing, so I thought I'd launch this website with some advice articles for autistic young people. Which, And one thing that's quite interesting is that when you start off on your advocacy journey, the end goal keeps changing. It keeps evolving with what you do. Yeah. For example, my advocacy was supposed to be for young autistic people, but now it's just for autistic people in general. And again, I talk to a lot of companies about uh, hiring and retaining and getting the best out of your autistic adult employees. And also the original advocacy was going to be a website, autistic.weird.com, which is where I write all my articles. And the Facebook page was just supposed to be this gateway through which people find the site because people only really find places through social media these days. Yeah. But now there's 174,000 followers on Facebook. That has become the place where I do most of my autism advocacy. It, it is on social media platforms rather than actual articles. 
Yeah, and it all started in April 2015 when I'd left teaching and I decided that the lifestyle choice of getting anxious and failing job interviews for a living just wasn't working out for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, eight years on, it's gone rather well and the job has evolved as well as it should really, as both my vision for advocacy changes and as the advocacy team changes and as the needs of the autistic community change. Yeah, to say that autistic people aren't supposed to be very good with change, I do a hell of a lot of adapting. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, so beautiful. So then, okay, so it started as this, like, you blogging. Are you still blogging now? I write about one or two articles a year. Okay, okay. But that makes sense. With that that said, they tend to be rather big when they happen. Last year, I published, have you heard of the Autistic Not Weird Autism Survey? No, I haven't. Tell us about it. Okay. I decided to run a survey that asks uh, questions about basically every autism-related topic there was, everything from um, employment struggles to co-occurring traits to what you believe about vaccines to language choices and basically this huge wide range of basically everything. And I asked people, okay, let's fill in uh, this survey. I will use my geeky mathematical brain. I do have a maths degree, but I promise I have a personality as well. And that was going to crunch the numbers and uh, do this right of this report of what turned out to be 11,000 people two-thirds of whom were autistic, so I had a lot of data to work with. Wow. Yeah, it's great. So um, I'm going to interject real quick, actually. So yeah. I will say I used to be in research before I started my practice. I was in academia, and this was my career path. So I know what a feat it is to get 11,000 participants. <laughs> in particular, like you said, two-thirds of them being autistic. That is incredibly difficult to get that amount of data. So I'm just like mind blown over here. Yeah, thank you. But people in academia keep telling me that. And even I did a similar thing in 2018. And the then director of the National Autistic Society called a train up to my hometown to have a meeting with me and ask how they could improve their research. Wow, that was some, that's quite something. Yeah. But yeah, when, when people ask, so how did you do it? How did you get just that many people? I have already mentioned uh, yeah, Autism Not Weird has got 174,000 followers, but that's not really the key because one of the questions, one of the opening questions was, did you find this thought Autism Not Weird? The reason I asked that question was because if all of them say yes, then it's not really a reflection of the autistic community. It's a reflection of my Autism Not Weird community. Mm. But I, I think, I can't remember the exact number, but it was less than 50% of the people who filled it in found it through me. Yeah, that was quite something. So anyway, in terms of how I managed to get that many people, it wasn't just because I've got this enormous online platform. It was also because of the message it was sending. Bear in mind, uh, I'm an author as well. I've crowdfunded a bunch of books, and I know how difficult it is to persuade people to, whether it's spending money on your stuff or just spending time filling in a survey for you, Really, it's a matter of persuading people of why they already want it. It sounds really marketing speaking, I suppose it is. But with the autumn survey, I told people it wasn't so much a, oh, could you do me a favor and fill in this survey because I want to write an article? It was more, this is going to be something rather big because the 2018 version had 11,000 respondents as well. I'm going to do an updated version 
uh, of this. And going by how often it had been referenced, the 2018 version, uh, all over the internet, would you like to be a part? Would you like your autistic voice or even non-autistic people, your parent voice, your professional voice, do you want that to be heard as part of this enormous survey? You've got a chance here to contribute to a survey that may end up shaping public perceptions of the autistic experience. Yeah, it was it was a matter of that, really. That's how I got people on board. I wasn't asking them to do me a favour. I was essentially trying to give an opportunity to as many people as possible to have their thoughts and their perspectives and their experiences heard, heard because we've got a lot to share between us. Absolutely. And as you're talking, Chris actually sent me this link. So I'm like scanning it real quick. I'm multitasking, to be honest, but it's incredible. The amount of data that's in here and all the questions. So we will link that in the show notes for you all. Highly, highly recommend going and looking at this because I feel like you can learn so much and you can figure out how to support your child even more. So Chris, thank you for all the effort. I know that this was not an easy task managing mm. it all, but also all the data analysis. I'm looking at all the different graphs and just uh, how you present that, that was it. A summer, a, was it a summer of work or was it a spring of work? It was several months work anyway. Yeah. But, it's pretty incredible. Okay, so you have your Facebook community. Sometimes you're still publishing on your website. You're doing amazing things like this autism survey. And then you mentioned already you have some books. So how did you get into writing books? And also, who are these books geared towards? Okay, so your first question, how did I start writing? I started writing by writing Sonic the Hedgehog stories for my younger cousin when I was 11, 12 years old. I then became a teenager who continued to write Sonic books for my younger cousin. And then I became an adult who, okay, I did one or two uh, pieces of uh, Sonic fan fiction, but that was just so much fun. But I did eventually branch out and make my own characters and my own worlds and things. I'm very much a, an advocate for fan fiction uh, as a means of creativity rather than income, obviously. Uh, there are moral issues about using other people's intellectual property for profit and so on. But I, I see it as an enormous compliment when you've built up this world and other people add their creative efforts into it. I, th I think that's lovely, really. So that's how I started writing. And ultimately, it ended up with me writing the Underdog series. Now, in the Underdog series, this is the, the basic premise. The whole of Britain has been imprisoned in these giant walled cities, and they're being guarded by a million or so clone soldiers. There are only 13 people left in the abandoned countryside fighting back with like small firearms and things against this army of a million. Most of them are teenagers who escaped an attack on their special school. So you've got autistic heroes and dyslexic heroes and heroes of ADHD and Down syndrome and anxiety and so on. Wow. And it has got PDA. And yeah, they're the ones fighting to free the rest of the population. Thank you very much. And hilariously, that book started life as a coping mechanism for unemployment. Because like I alluded to earlier, I had a lot of time on my hands was waiting for the recruitment system to not be terrible and actually me ending up getting a job as a teacher. That's ultimately led to a master's degree in creative writing. Underdogs was my dissertation, got a distinction. And then a year later, I got picked up by a, uh, by a publisher. And this coming February, the grand finale, the fourth out of four Underdogs books is getting published. And I'm really looking forward to that because... That is the that is when the war decisively comes to an end after four novels worth of stuff and after everything the underdogs have been through. 
And yeah, massively looking forward to how people respond to it, really. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. what like reading level are these books at? That's the thing. You know how The Hunger Games, for example, was written for teenagers, but a slim majority of its readers were adults? Basically that. Yeah. I'd okay. say that I generally say 12 plus, but I really do mean the plus. Okay. Yeah. And I also catch the occasional 10 year old reading it. But, uh, it's rare, but I'm actually reading it right now to one of my 10 year old clients. He's got PDA. The main character, Ewan, has got PDA. Okay. And yeah, he's seeing himself in the book, which is quite lovely. But yeah, yeah it's again written for teenagers, but a slim majority of its readers are adults. And some of them, this is something quite beautiful. You know how lovely it is when life seems to come full circle? About a year ago, someone alerted me to this fan fiction website. There are a few people out there writing underdogs fan fiction. And my heart melted when I found out. Wow. That's so cool. It was beautiful. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And I will say my mind is going to a few patients that I have right now that I will be recommending this instantly. And if parents are listening, we will also link how they can get the books. I think one of the things I just, I'm going to say this really blatantly is you're doing so much advocacy work and a lot of your advocacy work is unpaid. Like even I'll be honest, coming on this podcast, doing that survey. And so this is one of the ways I feel like too, you know, you're able to create, I assume some revenue and then we can support you for all this work that you're doing, because I think it's so incredibly important and advocacy is so key. And also at the same time, you've made this a career. And so are there just, I'm curious, are there other ways to be able to support your career, like other avenues that you have paid resources through? Well, thank you so much for asking. It's it's rare to have people asking me that. That is a podcast interview question. So yeah, thank you. I suppose there are three options, really. The most obvious one relating to what we were just talking about is, yep, I'm an author. Uh, books are available. Fiction and nonfiction books about autistic characters are out there and some autistic real-life people as well. Yeah, if you go on chrisbonello.com slash books, Bonello spells B-O-N-N-E-L-L-O, then there's basically a list of everything there and it's where you can order them. Number two, I have a Patreon page and I'm very grateful to Patreon because for those who don't know what Patreon is, it's, it's a website where... Writers, artists, musicians, but basically people who don't necessarily get a consistent monthly income, they can get that income from their follower base. So it's like a friend of mine from church, for example, she's a painter, but she releases a lot of her artwork through Patreon. And that means that at the beginning of the month, she gets a basically guaranteed stable income, regardless of how many uh, paintings she sells. And it's very useful for self-employed and all creative pe- uh, people. So, yeah, and also my my and my Patreon supporters are the people who directly enabled me to go full-time self-employed autistic advocates because I knew I was able to do that without it being too much of a financial gamble because directly of their support. And they're also directly funding my therapy, which is very nice of them. Good, good. We all need therapy. The, <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think it should be just given out for uh, for free. 
Well, yeah. whilst the therapists themselves get a stable income, obviously it should be funded through the government's right. and etc. But yes, I agree. Would be nice. Therapy is useful for everyone. But for example, I'm generally doing okay now, but I'm continuing therapy to make sure that I stay okay. Mm. And that should be fine and accessible for everyone. But I digress. The third way that people can support me if they want is if anyone here has any influence over conferences or speaking engagements, I do a lot of speaking. That is uh, very much where I want my advocacy to continue going. So if you happen to be an events organizer or if you have a friend who organizes speakers at conferences, feel free to pass them my name and my LinkedIn profile or testingalway.com or anything else you, uh, you think is relevant because I just love speaking in front of audiences. It's yeah. fun, including yeah. right now. And you're great at it. I like one, I've learned so much, but I also love your sense of humor. You've had me smiling and laughing, which the listeners can't see, but it, yeah, you're just a really dynamic speaker, but also providing so much value at the same time. So I've really enjoyed this. Yeah. Okay. Real quick, before we wrap up, talk about the Rubik's cube and like your love of that. And how does that start? And what does that look like? Okay, I won't be able to show your audience what it looks like, but I will scramble one in front of you uh, right now. But I'm thinking neither you nor your audience would have seen the fact that for the whole time we've been talking under the table, I've just been playing around with this because it, like a lot of neurodivergent people, if I'm moving this around, it helps me to think and to focus on things. Makes sense, yeah. Well, yeah. It's funny, people ask me, how did you, you start getting into Rubik's Cubes? I think the honest answer is... When I was at that friend I mentioned from church, I was a painter, still mm-hmm. is. Yeah, I went to a party at her house and one of her friend's sons said, Chris, what method do you use to solve a Rubik's Cube? And I said, I've never solved one in my life. And he said, oh, you just strike me as the kind of guy who just know how to solve a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know what, if I'm already meeting the stereotype, I might as well look into it. And yeah. I did look into it and then I found out exactly how much I loved it. And also I've seen the amount of good that, that it does for well, for me, it's both a hobby thing, it's a focus thing, it helps me when I need to be distracted by something because of thing, uh, things being really anxiety driving, this is perfect. Mm. When I want to achieve something I've not achieved before, speed solving this and trying to get faster and faster, it's great. And also it's become half my social life as well. I mean, once every two or three weeks, I go to somewhere in Britain for a Rubik's Cube tournament. And that's where a bunch of my friends are these days. Whoa, that's so cool. I never win anything. I'm, uh, I've am i had these hands for 38 years. They're not as fast as they would have been when I was 21. I know <laughs> right. the 38 isn't old, but there are 18 to 21-year-olds at the competition who basically win everything. But it's not really about the winning. It's just the fact that it's fun. Yeah fun and the social connection you're finding like-minded people there and mm. all of it. Oh, yeah. so in, in fact, I should probably talk to you about another one of my uh, fiction books. The, the first book that I wrote for 10 years that doesn't have any death or violence in it at all. It's the first story I've written in a decade with a body count of zero. It's called Alfie Smith, the Speed Cuba. Oh, and I saw that. So, I was on your website and saw that. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. 
So there's a division of HarperCollins called Collins Big Cat, and they uh, publish children's books and put them into schools. And they saw Underdogs and then got in contact with me and said, would you like to write a book with an autistic main character suitable for 11-year-olds? And I spent all weekend thinking, okay, what on earth could I write this about? And then finally, on Sunday evening, it finally occurred to me, I could just write it about cubing. And this is the story of an 11-year-old autistic lad, Alfie Smith, who rediscovers his confidence through learning how to speed solve Rubik's Cubes and attending tournaments. Despite what some people say, it's not based on me in the slightest, but I have seen stories similar to Alfie's playing out by seeing young autistic people very nervously turning up to cubing tournaments. And the cubing community is so inclusive and so friendly and just so wonderful. And it I don't want to play into the stereotype of saying, oh, everyone there is autistic. Because no, they're not. There is a disproportionate number of neurodivergent and or autistic people there. Yeah. But I think biggest reason is just it's friendly just because it's friendly. I, I've seen those young autistic people arrive on the Saturday morning being very nervous and then arrive on the Sunday morning feeling totally confident and having made loads of friends. It's brilliant. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Mm. They just know they're accepted there when yeah. there's people that are like them. And, and that is such a powerful effect that I think oh, yeah. for so many autistic kids, they have difficulty navigating social social settings and finding their people. And it is. It's about, I think, as a parent, helping them to find their passion and where other people have those like-minded passions can go such such a far way. Oh, so. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is, you, you don't even need to be particularly good at Rubik's Cube. I am very impressive by regular people standards. Mm. I'm extremely run-of-the-mill average by cubing standards. That's so funny. But that yeah. doesn't matter. <laughs> right. The amount that, that my life has been enriched by solving Rubik's Cubes doesn't even matter how good I am. You can solve it blindfolded in just over two minutes now. But What? <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, using both hands with both eyes open, it takes me an average of 18 and a half seconds. But blindfolded, that takes me more than two minutes. What? Oh my gosh. Wait, let's just do it. I want to see that. And (laughs) go. Wow. Obviously, y'all can't see this, but his hands are moving so fast. Okay, he's getting close. <laughs> this is so cool. That was a and little bit slower than average, but who cares? I love it. Oh, that is so cool. But like you're saying, it isn't really about being good or winning. It's all the confidence. You know, it helps, but it's not yeah, about it. It does help. I was going to say, I definitely <laughs> can't do that That's for sure. So, well, Chris, we probably should wrap up, but is there anything else that, you know, the listeners that are here, parents of autistic kids that you want to make sure you share that we didn't get a chance to talk about today? Often parents ask me a question, what do you wish your parents did while you're growing up? And that's actually a question I don't really like it hearing phrased in that way because it makes the assumption that my parents weren't already doing the best job they knew how to do. And I don't mean to brag, but I think they did a fairly good job. And it had pretty much any oh. flaws of me are flaws that I made entirely by myself. <laughs> I don't really have anything to blame my parents for. <laughs> but with that said, what my parents did right was seeing me for the person I was rather than wishing for, for this 
fictional, non-autistic version of me. And so, yeah, I suppose that's a bit of advice I'd give. The obvious side of it is, of course, get to know your child as the actual child and try not to separate autism from your child as if they're two completely separate things. 100% of your child is autistic and 100% of your your child will be best served by people who who love them for who they are rather than mourn them for who they're not. And I'd like to think that these days, because the neurodiversity narrative is going in a much healthier direction than it historically has, I entirely understand that when you don't know much about autism until you're told that your child has it, yes, you will panic, you will worry, because the world has told you that autism is supposed to be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But really, in order to provide the best for your child, know them for who they are, allow them to discover their strengths, and allow them in a world that's built without them in mind, and in a world that is obsessed with pathologizing them by focusing on their weaknesses, be the environment that enables them to see and define themselves by those strengths. Yeah. Such a beautiful end to this. And I love what you said and just want to emphasize as a parent right now, you're doing the best that you can. And I think that the fact that you're here learning and listening is so incredibly important. And I think the the key is just to focus on your child for who they are. And that includes autism. And ultimately, though, they're your child and love them and support them and create a safe space for them. So, Chris, so many wonderful insights today. Thank you so much for your time. As I already. Yeah, absolutely. And as I mentioned, we will link different resources, different ways people can connect with you in the show notes. But thank you so much. All right, y'all. That is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. I will see you back next time. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye y'all.